People dread different parts of dental care. As a dentist, I've seen it all. For many, it's the needles. I've had some people try to forego the pain medicine because of it. For others, it's the infamous drill. Its whirring sound is enough to cause even the strongest to tremble. That's the thing, though. Nobody sucking down nitrous oxide thinks about what I'm doing while I'm in there. They can't see inside their own mouths. The thing to be afraid of is what happens after. You see, it would be easy to kill someone in that chair while they're prone and under my influence. But there are witnesses. It's much more fun to insert the micro-tracking device just under the filling. It's something that will stay with them their whole lives. I can bide my time and take my tools on the road at a later appointment. The sun has gone down. It's dark outside. Nighttime has begun. But you dare not close your eyes. For in the darkness there are things unseen. Faces without eyes watching you. Nightmares exist while you're awake. No matter how much you try, you remain sleepless. Brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. Dentistry has come a long way lately. It seems the pain you could feel has been delayed until much later, as we learned from author K.M. Bennett from the tale which was this episode's cold open, Dental Work, performed by Ellie Hirschman. As Halloween approaches, I can see a new podcast in your future. Created by two members of the No Sleep Podcast editorial team, Ashley McAnally and Morgan Wilson. It's a new horror fiction podcast, likely to develop a cult or or occult following. It's called the It's All in the Cards podcast, where all questions are welcome, but you may not like the answers. Join in as we follow Jade Albright, an Ozark folk witch who runs an occult bookstore and offers tarot readings. In Season 1, a string of ritualistic murders occurs in Jade's town. Who's behind it all? Well, she could care less. That is, until the local coven makes it her problem. It's an innocent enough question, but it still irritates the shit out of me. So how does this work? It's simple. You ask a question, and the cards answer it. Well then, what's the point? The point is to see how much of it happens. Hey, Al. Is it already that time again? Well, that, but there also seems to be a slew of killings going on in your neighborhood at the moment. Is that so? I'm not here for myself. 
I'm here to warn you. I haven't done anything wrong. I need a reading. I can certainly help you with that. But are you sure that's what you want? Are you sure you want the answers? Oh, more than anything. Okay, follow me then. It's All in the Cards podcast, episode one, premiering September 30th. Episode one is available now with new episodes releasing bi-weekly. Check the link in the show notes for all the details. And now, we offer, for your approval, a series of stories we hope will make you sleepless. In our first tale, we venture into that most terrifying of locations, an office workplace. They can be cutthroat places at the best of times, But in this tale, shared with us by author Liam Hogan, we meet a woman who is hiding from a person stalking the office with an axe. I wonder if she feels lucky that hiding along with her is a very chatty co-worker. Performing this tale are Penny Scott Andrews and David Alt. So try to remain quiet and still when hiding from a killer. You need to remain entirely stationary. Did you ever play hide-and-seek? Shh. Oh, it's all right. No one can hear us in here. I dragged my attention away from the unmoving handle of the stationary cupboard. In what little light filtered beneath the door from the office beyond, I could just about make out the man whose hiding place I had crashed. His name floated somewhere in the ether, occasionally brushing against the tip of my tongue. Short, English... Forgettable. Jones, was it? Something... something in accounting. Or was he a James? Whatever it was, it was a long, long way from being important right now. There's a lunatic out there with an axe, I reminded him, keeping my voice low and hoping the reams of paper would help deaden the noise. I don't think anywhere's safe. He nodded even grinned, which didn't exactly reflect the severity of the situation. So, did you? Did I what? Play hide-and-seek as a kid, at Halloween or any other time of the year. I wanted to tell him a lot of things. I wanted to tell him to keep quiet, that this wasn't some childish game, that, never mind the axe maniac, I'd bloody well kill him myself if he gave away our hiding place. But I didn't say any of that. Of course I did. Were you any good at it? Excuse me? Good? At hiding? I'd spent the majority of my adult life making sure I stood out. And, right now, in my nod to the season, I was wearing my sleekest black skirt, my brightest blood-red lipstick, and even a bejeweled spider brooch, just the right side of subtle. My stationary cupboard cohabitee had made no effort at all, Not even a spooky bat-logoed tie. Okay, I guess. I was. You were? Good at it. Like, insanely good. So good my parents banned it because they were fed up tearing the house apart to find me. 
I'd slip into cracks you wouldn't have dreamt possible, emerge shrouded in dust and cobwebs. I gave him the once-over once again. Two walls of the narrow, windowless room were shelves, packed with cartons of pens, different sizes of coloured post-its, elastic bands, spare staples, the usual. The wall at the rear of the cupboard was reserved for printer paper, headed or otherwise. It was in the gap between the stacked boxes and the stationary shelves that we crouched, one to each side, barely a metre apart. He was a nondescript kind of guy, grey, hair thinning, spectacles, a stranger to the gym. Basically, your average behind-the-scenes back-office employee of Dunn & Newlands Investment Managers Limited. Someone far from the tricky business of handling our customers' money, and the even trickier one of handling our customers. Miles away from the tightrope we had to walk, between lavishing them with expense account dinners and appearing to be extremely frugal with what, after all, was their cash. The tightrope made all the harder for female client managers, such as I, by the mandated minimum three-inch heels. Heels that I'm pretty sure I'd never had to run in before, and would be very glad never to have to do so again. He seemed to find my close scrutiny amusing, the creep. Oh, I was thinner then, though that was never really the point. The willingness to cram yourself into a small space is more a mental than physical thing. Places that you might not even be able to escape from without help. There's an advantage in being in a space so obviously too small for a victim that no one ever bothers to look. I shook my head. Trust me to be sharing a hiding place with a talker. At least he wasn't that loud, however much an unexpected and unwanted shock his first words had been. He was surprisingly softly spoken, neutrally toned even when he said things like, victim. Perhaps he wasn't in accounts after all. Maybe he was a telephone receptionist. Though, hadn't they just been outsourced? Things had gone quiet behind the stationary cupboard door. That wasn't much of a surprise. In the wake of any number of disasters from 9-11 to Grenfell, I'd promised if I ever found myself in the midst of one that I wouldn't blindly follow the herd, because that was always what seemed to doom them, that lined them up in the crosshairs. I'd been on the second floor when news began to spread about what was initially reported as someone walking in off the street with a knife, before being hastily amended to a disgruntled employee going postal with a fire axe. So, as the office lemmings waited for the lift or blindly packed the stairwell until it slowed to a shuffle, I'd headed in the opposite direction, up. Which may, or may not, have been the wisest move as the axe splintered boardroom door and the blood smeared along the wall of the fourth floor corridor had gruesomely testified. Far too realistic to be mere Halloween decoration, and totally out of character for stage serious Dunn and Newlands. That had been what had driven me to seek immediate shelter, and having found it, prevented me from leaving this loser to his own sad fate and looking for somewhere else to hide. What really happened in scenarios like this? By now, someone would have called the police. On their many mobiles, since the office phones were dead, presumed sabotaged, but the authorities wouldn't enter the building until they knew it was safe, would they? They'd wait for an armed response. So this was a kind of hostage situation. I had two options, 
hole up with the world's greatest hide-and-seek expert, or risk making a break for it? What were my chances of slipping down a fire escape unnoticed? Probably low, because if everyone else had already scarpered, any noise, any movement was a risk, and this game was being played for keeps. Though, if I could convince John, or whoever he was, to lead the way, then perhaps that might nudge the odds back in my favour. There was, after all, only one Axemaniac, wasn't there? John's lack of physical fitness might actually play to my advantage. I didn't have to run faster than the Axemaniac, just faster than this dweeb. I turned to him, honeyed my words. I've always thought the best way of playing hide-and-seek was to switch locations mid-game, to hide somewhere that has already been searched. For the first time since I'd discovered him lurking in the dark, since the sudden shock of seeing the shifting glint from his owlish spectacles even as my eyes began to adjust to the gloom, he looked as horrified as I think our dire situation merited. He shook his head. No, 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 no. Well, perhaps if all you're doing is hiding behind the curtains or under the bed, places you know will be explored in a second sweep. But if you have a really good hiding place, why on earth would you swap it for somewhere worse? No, no, you should hide in place. Keep still, keep silent. I was a master at that. I could lie there for hours. I didn't need distractions to keep myself entertained. Didn't need a comic or a book or, I suppose, a phone in this day and age. And those urges, hunger, thirst, the need for the bathroom, they're all conquerable if you put your mind to it. Funny how human emotions can't keep on a single track for very long. My fear had ebbed away to be replaced by boredom. I was bored of his boasts, of his pointless conversation. At the horrible thought that, as he seemed to be suggesting, we might be there for hours. I guess I was annoyed as well, and not just because he'd dismissed my harmless little gambit. It was bad enough having to share this cramped dark space. The least he could have done was keep quiet so I could have ignored him. But no, he would go on and on about what I guessed had been the only thing he'd ever had to be proud of. So finally, I turned to this Jones, or James, or John, or was it Jack? You keep going on about how good you are at hiding, but you're not. I found you, and really, it wasn't even that hard. Oh, heavens. I heard the noise of something heavy and metal scraping across the stationary cupboard's industrial flooring as he giggled in the gloom. <laughs> of course you did. It wasn't my turn to hide. When you become a huge star in the world of horror, there are countless fans who adore you. Take my word for it. <laughs> oh, oh, no, 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 I, I'm no star. I mean, take it from me as I've learned from this tale, shared with us by author Matea Heller. In it, we meet a woman who's a huge fan of the young star of a killer horror franchise. 
a fan who tries very hard to reach out to the starlet. Performing this tale is Tanya Milosevic. So keep those fan letters coming, but stick to just writing them, and make sure you begin them with Dear Jennifer. Jennifer. Hi! This is the first time I've ever written to someone famous before, so it might sound a little dumb. I got your address from Heartthrob Magazine. My best friend, Tabby, said I should write to Jonathan Taylor Thomas, but I really wanted to write to my favorite actress. I'm 11, like you, and my favorite food is pizza, same as yours. What's it like to be in a horror movie? I've seen Pumpkin Slayer 1 and 2 so many times that the videotape wore out on one, and I had to beg my mom to get me another copy. She said maybe for my birthday, which is coming up on September 1st, only a few days before yours. You'd probably never be free to just show up at a birthday party of a kid you don't even know, but I thought I'd throw it out there, in case. Anyway, were you ever scared when the Pumpkin Slayer tried to kill you? I know it's only a movie, but I bet it could be really freaky. It was so crazy in Pumpkin Slayer 2 when you found out that the Pumpkin Slayer was actually your missing dad. I guess I have to wait till Pumpkin Slayer 3 to find out why he's stalking you. But maybe when you write me back, you could tell me. And I promise I won't tell anyone. I can't wait to hear from you soon. TTYL, Jesse. Dear Jennifer, Hi again. It's been a while. I got your letter. And to be honest, I was really bummed. Because it was just one of those form letters that you sent to everyone. I was really hurt when I read it the first time, Jennifer. Maybe I didn't say it clearly enough. Because I was trying to be cool. But I'm your biggest fan. So I read your letter again and again, like 20 times. And then I realized that you probably get, like, 50 letters a week. But if I keep writing, then you'll know I'm a true fan. And you'll send me a real letter soon. TTYL, Jesse. Dear Jennifer, I knew if I kept writing you, you'd send me a real letter. And you did! Now we can be pen pals! Tabby said that your letter wasn't even a real letter, only a better form letter you send to every kid who won't leave you alone, but it's not true. You told me all about your family and your dog, Lasso, and you said you never want to take your fans for granted. You said it was way cool of me to keep writing even though you're so busy and it's hard to respond. Tabby's just jealous and I'm not gonna hang out with her anymore. Anyway, Pumpkin Slayer 3 is coming up this weekend, and I begged my big brother to take me. He's 18, and he's friends with all the ushers at the movie theater. I can't wait! I hope you slay the Pumpkin Slayer. TTYL, Jesse. Dear Jennifer, I really thought maybe you'd give me a heads up that you were going to die in this film. I mean, it's so unfair. Is there even going to be a Pumpkin Slayer 4? 
What is Pumpkin Slayer without you? Don't get me wrong. Your death was really cool. I've gone to Home Depot with my mom a million times, but I've never thought about all the tools the Pumpkin Slayer could use to murder you. When he tossed your body into the wood chipper and all your guts spewed out everywhere, then yelled, clean up aisle seven. That would have been so funny if it was happening to someone other than you. I can't understand why they killed you off. Maybe you didn't want to be a horror actress. Maybe you wanted to do Disney movies. Maybe you wanted to go back to school and be a regular kid. I just think you should have told me so I wasn't so traumatized watching it in the theater with my big brother. When I started crying at the credits, he thought I was totally freaked out of the film. And he said he wasn't going to take me to a scary movie again if I was going to act that way. But Jennifer, I wasn't scared. I just couldn't believe you were dead. Please, please, please promise me that you haven't given up acting. My family doesn't understand why I've been moping around the house or why I'm scratching myself again. Only you can understand why I'm so depressed. TTYL, I guess. Jesse. Dear Jennifer, it's been a really long time and you haven't responded to any of my letters. Our 13th birthday came and went and I was sure I'd hear from you. My mom took me out to pizza to celebrate, but then her new boyfriend showed up, like always, and my pizza tasted gross after that. Mom and my therapist tell me I need to be nicer to him, but whenever I see him with his slimy goatee and his cappuccino, I think about that moment in Pumpkin Slayer 2, you know, the one with the coffee grinder. Anyway, my parents are divorced. My dad's not a serial killer like yours in Pumpkin Slayer, just a club owner in Asbury Park which my mom says is kind of the same thing. I know you're super busy with all the slug monster movies, but I wanted you to remember who your real fans are and that we need to hear from you sometime to know you're doing okay. Okay, Jesse. Dear Jennifer, I don't know why you haven't sent me any letters, but now I know you're still reading mine. I saw your interview in Heartthrob Magazine and the photo you were wearing, you were wearing blue and pink, my favorite colors. And even better, you said a friend recommended Twin Peaks and now you're loving it. That friend was me. I was beginning to lose hope, Jennifer, but now I know all my letters are worth it. I don't care if my mom's boyfriend says I'm acting like a loner psycho or that my therapist says I have unhealthy coping behaviors. They don't understand that we're not only pen pals, but real friends. They don't understand that when I start to scratch myself, the only reason I stop is because I think of you. They don't understand, but you do. Your friend, Jesse. Dear Jennifer, you seem really different now. I know you're not the little kid that starred in the Pumpkin Slayer movies, but now that we're teenagers, it just seems like you keep getting cast in these really slutty roles. I know I shouldn't say slutty. I'm totally all for girl power. But if you're the slutty one in horror movies, that means you die first. 
You're supposed to be the final girl, the one who survives until the end. Like you did in Pumpkin Slayer. Now you remind me of skanky Tabby and her friends who taped maxi pats to my locker. Don't worry, I made them sorry. Anyway, it's not a good look, Jennifer. I mean, you look good. You got side-swept fangs exactly like mine from the picture I sent you. But why do you keep accepting roles that don't showcase your talent? Are you trying to be a sex object instead of a star? I saw the photos you did in last month's Heartthrob magazine. Can your dress get any tighter? Okay, I know I sound judgy, but it's for your own good. I only want you to have a lifelong career as a respected actress. Your true friend, Jessie. Dear Jennifer, Hi, I'm coming to see you. I saw the TV ad for the horror convention coming to my town next month. And your name was on the guest list. This is so crazy. I can't believe we're actually going to meet. I just thought I'd give you a heads up so you can look for me when we're there. And maybe let me cut the line to get an autograph. Now that we'll finally be together, maybe we could grab dinner afterward. I know of this great Chinese restaurant, one of my favorites, right around the corner from the convention hall. Can't wait to meet you soon. It's going to be so awesome. TTYL. Your friend, Jessie. Dear Jennifer, I waited. I waited for hours. I saw you sitting there at that table and you looked so pretty. The prettiest you've ever looked. And I was so excited. And I knew it was going to be me. And I knew it was going to be the best day of my life. And we were going to have Chinese afterward. And I was going to tell you all about my family. And you were going to tell me all about yours. But then before I could get to the front of the line, you left. Your security said you had another engagement. When I told him we were supposed to meet for dinner, he said I should call you. And then when I explained that I didn't have your number, he only shrugged and said maybe next year, honey. I don't know what else to write in this letter, my tears are smudging the ink. I'm scratching and scratching. It's just so shitty, Jennifer. Why didn't you wait for me like we planned? I thought you cared about me. I thought we were friends. Jay. Dear Jennifer, I'm so fucking upset right now. I don't even know who I'm writing to. I just found out that Heartthrob Magazine doesn't even exist anymore. Out of print. Done. Gone forever. For three fucking years. So where have my letters been going to? Are they even reaching you at all? I'm such an idiot. This whole time I thought we were friends. I thought we were best friends. This whole time. This whole damn time. I've been writing to no one at all. Dear Jennifer, thanks to the wonderful people of the internet, I found your address. (laughs) Your actual address. Not one issued by some stupid teen magazine where any loser with a weird obsession can write to their favorite star. It's kind of spectacular how easy it was to find you. 
I only had to post a question on a forum. Can anyone help me find Jennifer X home address? And then poof! It was like I had a team of private investigators just waiting to be given a task. It took 48 hours for someone to respond, but he had it. Technology is amazing. So anyway, I thought I'd give you a heads up that I'm coming to visit. Who would have known that you only live two hours north of me this whole time? Now we can finally get that dinner we've always been talking about. Just so you know, so you don't get freaked out or anything. If you don't answer the door because you don't recognize me, I'm bringing a crowbar and the rope. It's only for emergencies too, you know. Like if you have leave for another engagement. And this knife, also no big deal, of course. It's like yours from the movies for carving pumpkins. I'm shaking. It's all finally happening. TTYL and see you soon. Your friend, Jesse. It's hard to imagine anything more terrifying than being abducted, seized by some nefarious person, bound and blindfolded, hidden away in a dark location. But in this tale, shared with us by author L.N. Hunter, we meet a woman who not only is enduring that horror, but she also has no idea how she got there in the first place. Performing this tale are Jesse Cornett, Nicole Goodnight, Matthew Bradford, and Kyle Akers. So stay calm and try to keep your wits about you. It's the only way you'll escape the room. It doesn't take you long to find the door, even groping around in the pitch black with your wrists bound together. You beat at the rough wood, twisting and yanking on the handle again and again. Your screaming finally weakens to impotent sobbing, and you collapse on the thin mattress that occupies almost half of the floor. You ask yourself, why? Why you? How did you come to be here? Your memory is fuzzy. You were at Sally Ann's 19th birthday party. Shots with the gang, everyone laughing. It was quieter later on. Margaritas on the balcony with Robson, a new friend of Sally Ann's brother. Tall, rugged, easy to talk to. Made you laugh. Ticked all your boxes. When the party was over, you were more than a bit drunk and Robson offered to drive you home. You remember getting into his car. And then, light blasts your eyeballs. 
You blink and squint. You see blood from where you clawed at the door earlier, ripping your fingernails. It's soaked into the musty mattress, taking its place alongside older stains you don't want to think about. As your eyes become accustomed to the brightness, you look around the room. Four plainly painted windowless concrete walls and a greenish wooden door with a round handle. Above, an unshaded light bulb hangs from its wire and about two feet across from it, a sturdy steel hook has been bolted to the ceiling. The lock clicks and the door swings inwards. A man stands there, silhouetted between the light outside the room and that from the bulb above you. You stagger to your feet. You lick your lips with what little moisture there is in your mouth. You force your voice to be calm. What's going on? Why am I here? You squint. The man looks a bit like Robson, but it isn't him. He stares for a while, saying nothing, then sets a tray just inside the door. You dash, but not quickly enough. The door closes, and once again you hear the click of the lock. The tray contains a bottle of water and a sandwich. You don't know how long you've been here, but you're thirsty. Too thirsty to care what might be dissolved in the water. You wrench the top off the bottle and chug half its contents before you force yourself to stop, gasping. The sandwich is a PB&J. The bread, a little stale, but your stomach needs it, and you shove it in your mouth and chew. You use the rest of the water to wash down the sticky mass. The light snaps off. You scream. You run to the door and beat the tray against it until your arms ache. You crawl back to the mattress. Sometime later, minutes, hours, you can't tell. The light comes on again and the door opens. It is the man who isn't Robson. Stan. What do you want? You feel embarrassed at the way your voice quivers. His response is a blank stare. You climb to your feet, and he strides forward. He hauls your hands high, slipping the rope binding your wrists over the ceiling hook. Your struggles and your screaming and your pleading mean nothing to him. He pulls a knife from his back pocket and grabs the front of your dress. When he starts to cut the material, you can't help yourself. You vomit, terrified. Half-digested PB&J splatter the man's face and chest. Jesus Christ, fucking bitch. He punches you in the stomach, making you wretch. But there's nothing left. He leaves, slamming and locking the door. You want to curl around the pain in your stomach but you're dangling from the ceiling, barely able to touch the floor with your feet. Gradually, the pain moves to your shoulders and wrists. You stretch up on tiptoes to relieve some of the agony, but then your calves start to burn. 
The man returns. You notice he's wearing a clean shirt. He ignores your whimpered pleas as he cuts off your dress and underwear. He looks you up and down, then pushes his face close to yours and sniffs. You recoil, and he laughs. A single, mirthless grunt. He lifts you off the hook and throws you onto the mattress. Your arms shriek as blood races through them again. They're too weak to let you push yourself up to prepare for whatever comes next. But the man leaves, picking up your shredded clothing, and closes the door. The light goes out. You have time to think as the pain slowly subsides. As soon as you muster the energy, you stand and grope for the hook in the ceiling. You roll the mattress into a clumsy cylinder and drag it to just below the hook to gain some extra height. You try to twist the hook in an attempt to remove it, but it doesn't budge. Later, you remember the light and, using the folded mattress as a crude step again, unscrew the bulb. You break it in one of the room's corners and crouch near the door, clutching the metal cap with its vicious crown of glass pointed outwards as you listen for the man's return. A faint tick, the light switch perhaps, startles you. The lock clicks and the door opens. What the? You leap up and thrust the broken glass into his face with all of your strength. He falls back and you follow him down to the floor. He brings his hands up to protect his eyes as, kneeling on top of him and screeching, you smash the light bulb into his head over and over again. Panting, you stand up and drop your bloody weapon. The man's not dead. You can hear his bubbling breath as you step over him. In front of you is a short corridor with stairs at the end. You lurch up the steps, glancing around the small house you find yourself in, and race to the front door. Panic flares when you can't open it. You notice the security chain. Swearing at your stupidity, you undo it and yank the door open. You run down the quiet suburban street, not registering how the road surface tears at the soles of your feet. Your need to get away is stronger than that mere pain. Headlights appear in front of you. A car door slams. What are you doing here? Robson? Robson? Is that you? Help me, there's a man he... Robson drapes his jacket over your naked shoulders. There, there. Easy now. Take deep breaths. Tell me all about it. I, I was trapped. He locked me in a room and, and took my clothes. I. You look at your blood-covered hands. I stabbed him and escaped. I, 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 I think he's dead. Robson's strong arms pull you close. It's over now. I've got you. You rest your head on his shoulder. He leads you to his car and settles you in the passenger seat. You stare out the window not seeing anything as he puts on your seatbelt 
he gets in and turns towards you. So, you met my brother. He says and punches you hard in the side of the head. True crime podcasts. They're extremely popular these days. People love the allure of the crimes they detail. But some people think they go too far in exploiting the torment and pain of the victims. But in this tale, shared with us by author Christopher O'Halloran, we meet a young true crime podcaster who blurs the lines between investigation and participation. I join Lindsay Russo, Sarah Thomas, and Matthew Bradford in performing this tale. So decide for yourself, are these podcasters doing good with their investigations, or are they just ghouls? Crumbs won't suffice. She needs the whole damn loaf. Something to feed her followers. Watching at home, listening while folding laundry, or driving to the grocery store for their weekly resupply of soda and potato chips. The world needs the smoking gun. We all know the story of Brandon Tides. Riley's hiking boots break the fallen leaves into innumerable fragments. The police could have stopped him. They could have saved Gianna and Ava French. Does her lapel mic pick up the wind blowing through the trees? the dirt under her heel. Each rock she kicks down the steep hills of Down's Bowl. They tumble like laundry. Small, large, doesn't matter. If a rock isn't a boulder, it falls. But even boulders fall with enough manipulation. It's only a matter of time before she cracks this case like a child's femur. Like the femur of Ava French, Brandon, and Gianna's daughter. The lower half of the bone identified by the forensic expert she met online, is all she has to go on. The only thing that suggests this is something more nefarious than abandoning an abusive boyfriend. A domestic argument gone wrong. Something the ineffectual police have let happen time and time again. But we can't do their entire job for them. We can't lock anyone up before they kill. All we can do is pick up the pieces after the fact. Riley takes a deep, dramatic breath. Her lungs are working hard on this hill. She's not looking forward to the uphill climb back. We don't save lives. We deliver answers. Another breath. Justice. There's nothing to connect Tides to the murder of his girlfriend and daughter. It's not even a murder, according to the police. Not yet. Just two missing girls. Twenty-seven and two and a half. They left me balls Brandon tides. He doesn't know why. Riley and her 385,000 followers know why. They know he killed them. They know the bone fragment found a block and a half from Down's bowl belongs to Ava French. The cops say they don't have the resources to run a DNA test, but in truth, they're just lazy. 
They don't take Riley seriously, despite her track record. Nobody takes her seriously when you're 17. She's too young, inexperienced. Her followers aren't so naive. She's not blinded by the way life used to be. She sees it the way it is now. It's up to Riley to prove the bone fragment isn't just some raccoon hip or squirrel skull. She's solved crimes before. The phone booth kidnapping, the English Bay Barber, the Summa's Prairie Slaughterhouse. Sure, she's fucked a few up. Obtained faulty leads from her sedentary Patreon members trawling through CCTV footage and misidentifying suspects by the wrong backpack. But that's just the nature of the game. Riley never doxed anyone. How her fans act on the internet is their business. None of the suicides are on her conscience. Not as long as she throws herself into the work without too much time to think about it. If she can solve this case, it will give her profile a huge bump. The competitive edge that would allow her to take things pro instead of using school equipment. She was already validated in the eyes of her teacher at Muat Secondary, where she developed her own subject. New media. In the spare period she had every day. But more views would mean more sponsors. Money enough to supplement their stipend. Enough to get her parents to look up from their tablets for a second and realize they have a daughter. Riley comes to the edge of a deep ravine. She knows her lapel mic is picking up the rushing stream. Water splashes up the rusted sides of ownerless vehicles below. At least a dozen. Abandoned like unwanted children. The police search the roads for Gianna French's pickup truck. But it's all for naught. Riley allows for a natural pause filled with the susurrations of the trees above and the water far below. Sounds her listeners only hear through speakers, supplementing an image they'll only see on a screen. I know it's in the auto graveyard of Downs Bowl. I'll be sure to include photos in the show notes, with more available to patrons. Support us for more content like this. It was one of her patrons that tipped her off to the truck buried in the scrub, spotted through the lens of his drone. God forbid any of the keyboard warriors actually get off their atrophied asses and investigate for themselves, she'd be out of a job. The truck isn't down there. Everything in the graveyard has been there for years. The beetle on the far bank on rims, the rubber of the tires eroded by water, a jeep on its roof, garbage bags spilling out of the rear hatch, a Corolla with a bird's nest in the driver's seat, eggs framed in the hole through the windshield. Riley leaves the edge. She doesn't suffer from stagnation. Not yet, anyway. Every grown-up in her life tells her things will change after high school, but they're only trying to justify their laziness. She's a shark, constantly on the move. She wades through brambles, making sure to keep an eye on the edge of the ravine. A fall might not kill her, but it'll break bones. Nobody would find her. Nobody hikes these days. Better be careful. She finds the truck on a downhill slope, its hood missing, in the ravine about 30 feet below. It matches the model Gianna was last seen in. White F-150. A relic of a bygone time. Something only the desperately poor resorted to. A gas guzzler at a time when gas is hard to find and priced accordingly. Being poor is so expensive. I'm approaching the truck. Riley keeps her voice full of reverence for the situation. The underbrush crawls up the wheels, starting to claim the vehicle like it has all the others. Thanks to Whovian69 for the tip. Join the Patreon for access to our exclusive Discord server, where you too can provide tips. 
Something in the passenger seat catches her eye as Riley comes close. Lime green. The rubber corner of something poking up from between ripped fabric and hard vinyl. It looks like the case to a tablet. Something to keep a toddler from destroying expensive electronics. Something that bounces. Her hand floats to the door handle as if remote controlled. Fingers worm underneath. Something slimy undulates away from her touch, burrowing in its dark home. Riley breathes deep, then pulls the door open with a creak of dirty hinges. A voice calls down from in the ravine. Hello? Something moves in the back seat of Gianna's truck. Riley gasps. Her hand, still controlled by some more instinctive part of her brain, pushes the door closed. The truck shifts. It lurches forward, back tires bouncing over tree roots. Riley falls away, trying to get some distance from its downhill path. Her jacket pulls her off her feet, however, sleeve caught in the door. She screams, unable to help herself. Her feet push at the dirt, shoving leaves into piles Ava French would have loved to kick through. The ground grabs her pants, pulling them down and exposing her lower back. Small, sharp rocks gouge her flesh, scraping her skin as she struggles desperately to wriggle out of her jacket. The truck picks up speed. Tires rumble. The sound definitely picked up by her lapel mic. Only a few feet ahead, the edge of the ravine drops off. Riley's eyes shoot wide. Her heart jackhammers in her chest. She can't get free. The truck drags her against a tree whose branches scratch like the clawed arms of her followers, demanding more, demanding all. Something tears in her arm. The rip of it cuts through the sound of the truck's lumbering progress. But it doesn't come with pain. With sudden hope, Riley sees the tear in the armpit of her jacket, ripped open by the tree as it scratched furrows in her cheeks. With a final tug, she opens up the rip. The arm of her jacket tears completely with a slow rasp. She rolls away from the truck, but momentum takes her over the edge regardless. The truck falls, engine down, nose sinking into the ravine like an Olympic diver. Riley grasps a loose tree root. It doesn't stop her, but slows her enough that she slides into the ravine instead of dropping suddenly, rolling down steep hills and bouncing off bumps that dig bruises deep into her body. The truck crashes, the sound accompanied by something wetter than the steam, something more visceral, a crunch, a splatter, twisting metal and shattering glass, Gianna French's truck at permanent rest. Riley comes to rest in the stream face down. Her first instinct is to breathe deeply. She's punished with lungfuls of water. Spluttering, she pushes up into air, hands sinking into soft mud. She falls back onto the grassy shore, scooting her ass backward until she comes to rest against a burned-out panel van with flat tires. Fire spreads along her back where the ground rubbed her skin raw. Her head pounds, each heavy inhalation sending dull spikes through it. Her chest heaves as she desperately tries to catch each fleeting breath. Then, the sight stops her cold. Gianna French's truck. Grill against the ground, crumpled into a mess of machinery. Glass scattered around the scene of its crash like diamonds. The small, glimmering shards carried away in the stream. A long flash of silver comes up from deep waters. Some sort of fish, less than the length of the shallow gash in her forearm. The fish surfaces, swallows one of those diamonds, darts further into the red now, tainting its commute to the wider Fraser River. The truck rests on top of something. All Riley can see is a lifted shirt, 
skin exposed to his hairy navel, thick legs extending from the mess like the witch crushed by Dorothy's flying house. One of the feet twitches rapidly, the movements too small to be anything but primeval, the last few flashes of electricity and nerves no longer connected to a brain, a brain crushed beneath 4,000 pounds of American manufacturing. His body leaks into the stream, blood pooling around the bumper. There's a body. It takes her a second to realize she's speaking into a lapel mic in pieces, wires pulled open like a bouquet with plastic and metal blossoms. Fuck! She'll have to record the rest of this after the fact. Hopefully her phone survived the fall. Nobody will believe her without photos, videos. She'd do an Instagram live if there was any reception in this fucking park. On the other side of the truck, the passenger door falls open, then off, hinges failing. It slams against the ground, the sound sending a jolt of panic through her body. Someone groans. Is the man alive? He can't be. She crawls over to him. Mister? Riley peers at the bumper. His head is caved in completely, crushed beyond recognition. Something like spaghetti bolognese in a ceramic bowl. Riley goes still. Her body vibrates, micro-tremors radiating along her skin. She's seen a body before, but this... Motherfucker. A man from the other side of the truck. He crawls away, visible through the window of the driver's side. Old man pants held up by brown suspenders. Gray hair, a horseshoe on his head. Riley is pretty sure she knows who it is. Ernest Graham, the fisherman. Take a trip on his boat and he tells you a tale of true crime. Just two fishers shooting the shit, waiting for a bite. Or at least that's his shtick. He records in a studio that also puts out improv comedy podcasts and audio plays. That's not where the fisherman's hypocrisy ends. Riley's pretty sure he's vegan. There was a photo posted on Reddit of him picking through tofu at the supermarket. Probably hasn't fished a day in his life. He rolls over onto his back, panting at the sky. Blood paints his face crimson. His white beard is soggy with it resting on his neck. One of his suspenders is ripped. His plaid shirt has come untucked and his belly hangs out like that of the man beneath the truck. Ernest Graham? He winces and sits up jerkily, almost like claymation. His hand lifts to his forehead and touches a swelling mass before coming away quickly. Riley skirts around the truck. Were you in there? I found it. Found it. Of course I was in there. Solved. Solved it. Fucking Hoovy in 69. He must have shared the tip with anyone who would listen. And they call the investigators ghouls. The keyboard warriors are worse. We can share the discovery. Riley eyes the truck. Its rest not as permanent as it first appeared. It balances precariously on its nose. A child standing on one leg. One strong breeze from falling to earth. Ernest Graham finally sees the man crushed beneath it. Is that? Riley notices the crocs on the man's crushed feet. Pink as bubblegum despite the grime of the stream. The sponsored footwear donned by thousands of Tom fans in support of their true crime messiah. Stephen Tompkins. The stay-at-home dad who started his own podcast while his kids were at school. Another true crime investigator. As far as Riley knows, he really does do it at home. The real deal. Began in his closet, laptop between his knees, and coats surrounding him. 
Now he has the money for a home studio. Now, all the money in the world can't help him. Stay-at-home dad should have stayed at home. You killed him. You- You were in the car. Riley is glad her lapel mic is broken. This is a conversation she doesn't want on the record. Are you telling me you got in without engaging the parking brake? His eyes are glassy. They dart around, clouded in confusion. Something pulses in his forehead. The swelling grows. Uh, I, uh... Ernest Graham looks at Riley. His eyes are bloodshot, bulging. Did the crash knock them loose, or is that how he always looks? Are, are you gonna kill me? What is he talking about? She's not a killer. She's a fucking high school student. Mr. Graham. Riley Jones? His eyes narrow. He wipes blood from his eyes and flicks it into the water. You... you solved the Knox murder. Riley smiles. That's right. That was me. Carl Knox ended up dead at the bottom of a flight of stairs with a broken neck. Riley's smile fades. An image of the man, body twisted at her feet, flashes before her, swimming like the fish with a belly full of glass. She closes her eyes and shakes her head, wiping the memory. He came after me. He attacked me. Yeah, because he knew you were dangerous. Ernest Graham's chest rises and falls rapidly on the verge of hyperventilation. How bad is his head injury? He's not thinking straight. I'm going to call for help. I'm going to get you help. She can no longer feel the bruises and cuts from her fall. Adrenaline courses through her veins, electricity in her bones. She reaches for the phone in her pocket. It's broken. The screen shattered. She's not getting pictures of the sight. She's not getting a life flight for Ernest Graham and his pulsing forehead. There'll be no recovery of Stephen Tompkins' body anytime soon. Ernest Graham reaches into his own pocket to bring out a phone of his own. He pulls a knife, removing the leather sheath and throwing it in the water. He knew you were dangerous. He takes a wet step forward. I'm not. Riley takes a corresponding step back and comes up against Gianna French's truck. It rocks back and forth, digging into Stephen Tompkins' skull and crushing bone into dust before settling. You killed him! Ernest Graham points his beard at the body. I won't let you kill me! Riley steps around the truck and into the stream. Wait! Her heel comes down on a slimy rock. It shoots out forward and she goes down hard on her ass. Flash bulbs go off on the end of her eyelashes. Ernest Graham takes advantage. He lunges, knife in both hands, raised high above his head, his teeth bared as he falls. Riley scrambles backward. As she does, her heel pushes rocks out from under the bumper of the truck. Two things happen almost at the same time. Ernest Graham plunges his knife into the stream. The blade bounces off rocks taken downstream. He lands face down in the water. Then the truck falls. It tilts over brought out of its apex by the dislodging of rocks keeping it stable. The cab lands on Ernest Graham's legs. He screams in agony, head underwater. Bubbles float to the surface. His beard streams out around his face. Ava French's lime green tablet floats out of the shattered car window. It bounces off rocks and is carried downstream into Stephen Tompkins's blood, now mingling with that of Ernest Graham's busted forehead and mangled legs. Riley rushes forward. Despite what Ernest Graham claims, she is not a murderer. 
despite what her critics say of her and her colleagues, she is not a ghoul. She grabs Ernest Graham under his arms and lifts him out of the water. She can't pull him out from under the truck, but she can prevent him from drowning. His screams fill the ravine, bouncing off the walls, reverberating against the rusted metal of every vehicle abandoned there. The water has washed his forehead clean. His skull is busted open. A fissure about an inch wide letting dirty water inside his head. His brain would be floating in there if it wasn't swelling before her eyes. Riley's muscles scream. He's a big man. She can't hold him forever. Don't let me die. He cries and pants, slurring his words. Fresh blood coats his face. A mask the color of cartoon apples. It flows freely into the water and thankfully obscures the window into his head. Don't let me die. Better than don't kill me. I won't. She can dig him out. All she has to do is remove the rocks under his legs. As long as he... A hollow in the ravine wall catches her eye. Dark, damp, about the size of a doghouse. The perfect hiding spot. She leaves Ernest Graham rushing over to the hole in the dirt. There's something white inside, small like a polished rock. Rocks don't have teeth, though. Riley digs her arm in, pressing her fingers into the eye holes of the skull. Something there squishes like jelly. But she's been doing this too long to get grossed out anymore. The gash in her arm opens more, blood leaking onto the dirt as she struggles with the skull. It gives a pop, the spine detaching. Riley pulls out the half-decomposed head of a child. Eva. Animals have been at the exposed bits, but what was in the dirt is remarkably preserved. Dirty, blonde hair, gray flesh along a torn ear. She can't tell how the child was murdered, but she suspects Brandon Tide suffocated her, placed a pillow over his daughter's head, strangled her maybe. If she digs around, she can reveal the body, find out the cause of death, maybe even find the body of Gianna French. Were they buried here, then revealed by erosion? It's only been a month. Then again, they've had some heavy rains. It's possible. She'll have to get in contact with her forensics guy, maybe stretch an interview with him over an episode of its own. This'll surely lift her past 500,000 subscribers, maybe even bump her up to a solid mill. This case is nationwide. People across the continent will want to know how she solved it. Interviews, articles written about her, guest spots on daytime TV. Mom and Dad will be thrilled. She'll FaceTime their tablets and give them the good news. Riley pulls her phone out to shine the flashlight in the hole, but the crack in the screen and the dented back remind her of its condition. She won't be able to see any more unless Ernest Graham has a light. Ernest Graham. She can't call for help with her busted phone. The least she can do is share the discovery with him. Maybe they can team up in the future, climb out of this ravine full of derelict vehicles and start their own network. Mr. Graham! She holds up the skull. She smiles so wide it hurts. Scrapes from her fall tearing open on her face. Bruises cry out. But it's the pain of a job completed. The satisfaction of being the greatest in your field. He doesn't struggle against the water. His head is fully submerged, arms akimbo. They sway gently in the stream. Blood continues to pour from his busted skull. We don't save lives. She couldn't save Carl Knox from his tumble down the stairs. Couldn't save the poor high school kid bullied into a noose when her fans turned a million misled eyes on him. The trout darts up and nibbles at the exposed brain of the fisherman. 
we deliver answers. Her smile falters, only for a moment. When treating a person with extreme mental illnesses, psychologists often have to probe deep into the person's mind to fully understand their twisted perspective. It can be a grueling process. And in this tale, shared with us by author Elizabeth Napier, we learn of one doctor trying to decipher young Margaret, a girl with exceedingly dark desires. Performing this tale are Andy Cresswell, Erica Sanderson, and Ash Millman. So don't be fooled by her innocent exterior. There's something hiding deep within. Patient 4B. Following is a recording of a consultation between Dr. David Matlock and patient 4B of the Mayview Clinic, dated the 9th of September, 1981. Before this consultation continues, young lady, I am obligated to inform you that I am recording everything you say for my own personal records. This tape will not leave my possession and will not be played to anyone without your express permission. Nothing will leave this room. Is that all right? Perhaps instead of nodding, you could say it out loud for the benefit of the tape, Margaret. Yes. Very well. Would you mind stating your name and age? My name is Margaret, but I suppose you just said that. And your age? Fifteen. Good. Now, I know you most likely don't want to be here, but your referral was quite necessary, I'm afraid. Given the incident last month... Two months ago. Uh, yes, precisely. Given the incident two months ago, your mother thought it best you speak to someone professional. That's where I come in. Will it be like the other times? The other times? I've seen doctors before. My parents think I'm mad. My brother pretends not to. Do you think I'm mad, Dr. Matlock? Quite the opposite, Margaret. You seem a bright young lady. I am. Always have been. They think that the things I do stop that from being the case. And what things do you do? I kill things, Dr. Matlock. Did you not know that? Yes, I did. There is mention of a gerbil in your notes. Geoffrey was quite boring, actually. All gerbils are. Have you ever killed a gerbil, Dr. Matlock? No, I don't suppose you have. Their bones feel like cornflakes. Do you like cornflakes? They're my daughter's favorite. My brother likes them. I think they taste like cardboard. Do you need me to tell you how I killed Geoffrey? That's what the other doctor at the time asked. No, that's... 
That's quite all right. Remind me of how old you were. Six? Five, I suppose? Our birthday isn't until June. This was May. The doctor thought I was just stupid. Do you think I'm stupid, Dr. Matlock? Like I said, Margaret, you seem extremely bright. Perhaps we should talk about the incident that led you to be here in the first place, yes? Like I mentioned. You mean Kelsey? Yes, quite. How did you... What if I don't want to talk about it? I'm afraid that's why we're here. You do realise that, don't you? You said you didn't think I was stupid. I don't, Margaret. Then why are you talking to me like I am? I think you're stupid. I think your breath smells like egg sandwiches and your eyes are a horrible colour. Does that help? No, it doesn't. It doesn't change you. Don't treat me like I'm stupid, Dr. Matlock. Young lady, that's quite enough of that. And stop picking at your hands, please. It doesn't suit a girl of your age. Girls of my age love to hurt themselves, Dr. Matlock. Shouldn't you know that? Margaret, I... It doesn't even hurt, see? I could peel the whole nail off and I wouldn't care. I do it all the time. Not because it hurts or because I hate myself. I rather like myself. Then why do you do it, pray tell? I just like to see the blood, Dr. Matlock. It looks like ink. Stains like it too. Did you know that, Dr. Matlock? Aiming for shock value will get you nowhere, I assure you. Why would I want to shock you? Why wouldn't you? You're a teenage girl. It's what you like to do. I just told you that's not what I do. Were you not listening? Margaret, enough of the back and forth. You know what we're here to talk about, so let's please talk about it. We need to talk about Kelsey and what... I stabbed her in the eye with a compass. She bled a lot. Made this little squeak, just like a pig. She went to the nurse's office. I went to the headmaster. It was all very dull. What else do you want me to say? There's not much else to tell. Why did you do such an atrocious thing? She talked too much. You shrug as if it is that simple. It is. She was scared of me even before I did it, I think. I could tell by her breathing. The change in it, like this little lilt in her lungs. In, out, pitch. In, out, pitch. In, out, pitch. That's not a reason to stab someone. As good a reason as any. I think you'll find it isn't, young lady. We must treat people with respect and kindness. The virtues of it far outweigh the cons. What if someone had done that to you or your brother, hmm? I'd think you'd find that deeply upsetting. Not particularly. My brother would probably let me. He's scared of me too. In, out, itch. In, out, itch. Just the same. Would your brother let you do that, do you think? I don't have a brother, Margaret. Please do refrain from touching the tape recorder. Those things cost a lot of money. I suppose you think I should be grateful you're using it with me then, don't you? No, I wouldn't be so presumptuous with someone like you. Now, can we please continue to discuss the matter in hand? I told you what happened, Dr. Matlock. What else can you need? I need to know why you did it, for heaven's sake. 
Because she talked too much. Enough of the nonchalance, Margaret, please. You cannot just chew over such instances as if they do not matter. Nothing matters, Dr. Matlock. I just do things because I like to do things. Kill things because I like to kill things. This is all starting to get rather overdramatic, young lady. A gerbil hardly makes you carry white. I'm assuming you know to which film I'm referring. Or are you to be that incorrigible as well? I preferred the book. I'm sure. One gerbil doesn't equate you to a character written by the likes of Stephen King. You're just an attention-hungry little girl. One gerbil. That is what my notes read. They forgot about the dog. They always forget about the dog. The dog? Do you want me to talk about the dog? My mum won't let me talk about the dog. I think the dog story is interesting. Can I tell you about the dog? I'm afraid I don't follow, Margaret. The dog. It was useless, so I killed it. Do you want me to tell you more? I'm not really sure that it would... I think he was a Labrador. He belonged to our neighbours. Beige, like those rugs they sell at the market. I should have kept the fur. Mum could have used it for something. But it all started to smell after a while, you see. All of him cut up into chunks. We could smell him rotting from those stupid bin bags. Quite the gruesome tale, Margaret. But fictional at best. Have you ever heard someone skin a rabbit, Dr. Matlock? What? My granddad used to do it when I was little. He made me and my brother watch sometimes. My brother hated it, but I rather liked it. I liked the noises. The nicks as he cut around the feet. The rip as he pulled away the skin. The blood would drip onto the floorboards of his shed like cheap off-brand Ribena or something, and he'd wipe it away with the fur he'd just torn off. The rabbit would hang from the ceiling for a while, flies getting all over it. I'd sit there, watching it. I tried wiping up the dog's blood with the fur, but it just ruined the colour. Smeared it, too, all over the floor. I thought it would just... Are you all right, Dr. Matlock? Why must you say such disgusting lies, Margaret? In, out, hitch. What on earth are you talking about now, Margaret? Are you scared of me, Dr. Matlock? Don't be idiotic. I'm not idiotic, Dr. Matlock. You wouldn't be scared of me if I was. I am not scared by a 15-year-old girl with the manners of a doormat. Do you want me to talk about Agnes too, then? She wasn't as interesting, but it helped me realise how to do it right. Do what right? Kill. And was Agnes indeed a gerbil or a dog? Is something funny, Margaret? I think I'm too idiotic to find things funny, Dr. Matlock. Maybe we should talk about Kelsey properly after all. Ask me again. <sighs> Why did you stab your schoolmate, Margaret? Because I wanted to. Right. There it is again. In, out, hitch. In, out, hitch. You really are scared of me, aren't you? Agnes was scared of me. When I killed Jeffrey and the dog, I got to see what their insides looked like. Sort of squishy and a little bit yellow. Not quite butter yellow, more like sick. 
You know the sort when you've eaten too much and it just comes right back up? Not the ill kind. That's always browner, I think. I wanted to take a photo to remember the colour, but I didn't have a camera. Polaroids always get the colour wrong anyway, don't they? Washes them out. I wanted to see Agnes's inside too, but I had to leave. You may think yourself interesting for killing animals, Margaret, but all that really makes you fit for is a job at the abattoir. But Agnes was a person, Dr. Matlock. Excuse me? Did I not mention that? She was eight. I was twelve. She was very easy to push from the bridge. I think because she was small, but I'm not sure. Maybe because she had weak legs from when she had polio. Have you ever had polio, Dr. Matlock? I've never had it. Sounds interesting, I think. But if anyone was going to get it, it was Agnes. She was rather pathetic. Snivelly, too. I don't like snivelly people. They're not very interesting. There was this thud when she hit the ground. Like a sack of flour. I wanted to go down and look at her after she fell, but I knew Mum was waiting. She was making beans on toast for tea. She always adds butter to the beans in the pan, melts it down so it goes all silky, and then she puts cheese on top. It's all she's good for. That and having unprotected sex with any man from down the pub. The cheese is the best part, I think, but my brother likes the toast. He usually takes the crusts off and leaves them on the plate like wishbones. Do you take the crusts off, Dr. Matlock? I don't think Agnes died immediately. I heard her crying. She called for her mum. Mummy! Mummy! But then she stopped. Just like you have. Why have you stopped talking, Dr. Matlock? I, I don't... I'm, I'm sure you, you don't... Do you realise... Jesus, girl! Dr. Matlock? What are you doing? I am turning off this blasted tape recorder and calling the police, Margaret. Why? Why? You just admitted to murder. Oh. Is that why you stopped talking? I thought you just wanted me to tell you everything that happened. I am a doctor, Margaret, not a confessional. I'm going to the police this instant. But you said... Nothing would leave this room, Dr. Matlock. I hardly think this applies anymore. Jesus. <laughs> Sit down, for Christ's sake. What do you think you're doing? Oh, sorry. I thought I'd make sure. Make sure of what? That nothing leaves this room. To listen to the tape again, press the rewind button on your device until the desired point of listening. To listen to the tape again, press the rewind button on your device until the desired point of listening. To listen to the tape again, press the rewind button on your device until the desired point of listening.
In our final tale, we explore the fascination with death. Even the squeamish gore of so-called real death footage videos can pale to encountering an actual dead body. And in this, yes, extremely dark tale, shared with us by author Dustin Burden, we meet a group of teenagers who have to deal with some things which are far more gruesome than death. Performing this tale are Jeff Clement, Graham Rowett, Atticus Jackson, Aaron Lillis, Ellie Hirschman, and Jesse Cornett. So prepare yourself for what you're about to experience. You're about to look into a face of death. I was 13 when I found a dead body. There were questions, and I answered them all truthfully, except one. Did you see anything else? I lied to the police and said no. The thing I saw was never brought up. It took several months, but life in my little town of Camus, Michigan went back to normal. That's when I started to lie to myself, believing I hadn't seen what I saw, and carried on with my life. I came home last week to settle my father's estate, unaware the lie was about to end. The first four days, I talked to lawyers, real estate agents, and felt a mixture of grief and fondness as I boxed up mementos left for me in his will. Last night, whatever grief and fondness I felt sank into dread. Buried at the bottom of my father's safe was the thing I hadn't seen in twenty years. Evidence to a crime. Before I do anything, I have questions about this thing hidden in my father's possession. Only one person could answer them. I made the call last night. What is this thing? Why haven't I called the cops? Since there's still time before my guest arrives, I'll tell you the story. Hopefully you'll understand my hesitation. It started on a Friday night in mid-April of 1996. The night my brother Ellis and I decided to rent the goriest film of all time. Faces of Death. Renting a movie on a Friday night was a household ritual. Our father didn't care what we watched, unless it was Basic Instinct, which Ellis sometimes tried to sneak past our dad, or brutal horror films like Faces of Death. Before we left, Ellis and I agreed I would put the VHS tape on the counter. After he inspected our bedrooms, we climbed into Dad's truck and drove the three miles down pothole-ridden roads to Mike's Market. Mike's belonged to a class of general goods stores that dot all of rural America, in places without grocery stores or much of anything else. While our father shopped, Ellis found the tape high on the back wall. 
I carried the VHS tape to the counter and placed it next to a box of hot dogs, a pile of snacks for Ellis and me, and a case of 30 Milwaukee's Best. Our father only glanced at the tape before paying the bill. Streaks of purple and orange ran across the sky as we pulled up to our sagging ranch house. Our father saw us inside, made sure we had enough food, gave us a farewell salute, and left to see his girlfriend, Denise. Ten minutes later, we heard a knock at the door. Luke McInnes, short and rotund, greeted Ellis at the door. Luke, 17, a year older than Ellis and four years older than me, couldn't hide his childish, toothy grin. <laughs> you got it? Luke stepped inside. Ellis rattled the VHS in his plastic case. Tape loaded, Luke and I settled at opposite ends of the couch while Ellis sat in our father's chair. The film crackled to life. A middle-aged man with a thick mustache spoke into the camera. Unfortunately, medical science cannot always have success. I am a collector of the many faces of death. When this organ ceased to function, the result was death. We were only five minutes in when Luke said, Fast forward to the good shit. I'm Dr. Francis Dos. Ellis sent the film blurring forward, stopping at the sight of a bald peen hammer smashing open a monkey's head. The lifeless chimp was trapped at the center of a table. Two couples, tourists, were picking at the brains with small skewers, eating the gray matter inside. They laughed and teased one another, somehow pleased at the sight of the monkey's shattered skull. Standing, not waiting for the scene to end, Ella sped the video forward, the tape cut back in, center-framed on a man in a purple robe on his knees before the corpse of a young woman. The robed man's head shot up. Tangles of long hair fell away from his face, exposing a wide grin. The man gestured with his arms spread wide over the body. He addressed a circle of a dozen wide-eyed followers. Viewpoint, they were dangerous individuals whose minds were controlled. This is our people. Keep it, people. Come on, touch it. It's ours. The robed man stood. He strolled around the circle of followers, stooped, and placed something small in each of their mouths. They smiled as they swallowed the small object. Some of the women in the group reached up and kissed his cheek. What's that? That's a probably. The leader returned to the corpse and knelt over the body. The camera followed the man's hand as it slipped into the robe and drew out a long hunting knife. Light shimmered off the blade before it disappeared into the woman's chest. The smile was gone. The robed man snarled as he pried open the puncture wound. 
The cult leader dug his hands into the cavity and passed out blobs of red flesh to the members of the circle. Did they know what they're doing? Yeah, he's got him. Ellis glanced over to Luke, whose face was as transfixed as the dazed cult members. They ate what was given to them. Soon, women were taking off their clothes and rubbing blood across their chests. I felt an elbow in my side. <laughs> nice, ain't they? But I had returned my head into the corner of the couch, unable to look. The poor baby can't handle it. Next one. Ellis stood and sped the tape forward. The man with the mustache was back and peering into the open skull of a dead woman. The camera panned in on a mass of black within the woman's brain. Luke wasn't hooting away at the image on the screen. My eyes followed Ellis's as they moved across the room to the photo of our mother. This time, Luke stood and turned off the television. It's a stupid movie anyways. I heard most of it's made up. I shuffled in my seat. Ellis's stare was distant. Luke returned to his end of the couch. A thought occurred to him, and he smiled. Fuck that movie anyways. I got something better. The couch groaned as Luke reached for his backpack. Out came a glossy magazine. On the cover was a blonde woman, naked, lying chest down on a bed of twisted white sheets. Her blue eyes and oval face peered into the camera, as if looking up and out through the cover. The girl from MTV. Jenny motherfucking McCarthy. Once the initial surprise was gone, Ellis settled back into our father's chair, arms folded across his chest. Luke shot him a grin, then looked down at the magazine in his lap. Luke's pudgy fingers delicately turned each page. Twice I shuffled in my seat and raised myself up to see over and onto the page. Each time I did, Luke feigned a casual shuffle and kept the magazine out of sight. By ancient right, the magazine was Luke's to do as he commanded. He was the eldest among us, the most aggressive. The magazine was his totem of power. As I contemplated this, Luke closed the magazine. Holding it close to his face, Luke pretended to inspect some hidden detail on the cover. Every few seconds, his eyes would dart up from the cover and fall on Ellis, daring him to ask for his turn. Ellis sat stony and said nothing to Luke's challenge. Luke turned his attention back to the magazine. He didn't open it, but peered closer at what he pretended to see on the cover. The snaggletooth smile grew wider. The beaten machinery inside our father's lazy boy creaked as Ellis sat forward. Let me see it. Luke sighed and tossed the magazine. The pages fluttered in the air and hit the table with a meaty flop. 
Ellis's hand started forward and the magazine was in his lap. Ellis tilted his head, peeking around each new glossy page before turning to the next. It was a long minute before Ellis reached the centerfold. Luke stood and leaned over Ellis's shoulder. She fine, ain't she? My brother nodded. You better hurry up, I whispered. Dad'll be back soon. Ellis didn't look up. Shut up, Gabe. You went to see that movie with Denise. Ellis paused and lowered the magazine, turning to Luke. You know, the one with the guy in the green face? When no one responded, Ellis frowned and returned to the centerfold. Luke broke the silence. It's all yours. You're giving it to us? Ellis lowered the magazine and raised an eyebrow. You guys can hold on to it. That's nice of you, Luke. Luke leaned onto one butt cheek and let out a huge, bubbling fart. <laughs> Me? Nice? <laughs> I gagged. Uh, smells like a goddamn dumpster. <laughs> Ellis choked, face red with laughter. <laughs> Wipe your ass, fat boy! <laughs> Luke's double chin jiggled as he laughed. The smell was gone and we were done laughing. The magazine was back on the table, those blue eyes staring up at me again. You know what would make this night even better? Ellis rose from the chair and moved toward the television. Luke spun in his seat. He watched as Ellis pulled the Sega Genesis from the cabinet below the television. Better than a Playboy? Beside the Sega was a single black plastic case. Ellis sent it flying into Luke's lap. Dude! Mortal Kombat 3! Luke tossed the game cartridge back at Ellis. Slap her in. Let's go. Once the Sega was on and the title screen flashed, all talking stopped. Luke and Ellis were choosing their characters when Ellis called me over. His eyes never left the screen. All right, Squirt. You can take a look. But keep it here. Don't look too long. Make you go blind. The boys forgot about me and I took the magazine into my lap. The time flew by. Luke and Ellis might have played video games for 30 minutes. It might have been an hour. At some point, the lights of our father's truck flashed through the windows. Game. My brother's shout startled me, and the magazine hit the floor. Both boys were standing, the characters in the video games stood dumb, awaiting the input from their respective controls. Outside, the sound of gravel crunched under our father's boots. Pass it! 
Luke didn't wait. He dove to his knees, reached under the coffee table, and pitched it behind him like a football. The pages fluttered in the air and crunched as Ellis caught the flying magazine. The pages crinkled as Ellis shoved it down the front of his pants. Just as Ellis dropped his sweater over the seam, the front door opened. We were all standing when my father closed the door behind him. He raised an eyebrow at the three of us, his gaze lingering on Ellis. Up to no good, I see. Ellis shifted under our father's gaze. The magazine tucked into the seam of his pants crinkled. Light bounced off an exposed sliver of glossy cover. Ellis tugged his shirt down. The three of us looked at one another but said nothing. Our father let out a scoff as he passed us and moved into the hall. Time for bed, boys. See y'all later. Ellis and Luke spoke outside on the porch. From the window, Ellis mouthed the words, I'll be back. I went to the kitchen and saw them disappear into shadows that filled our lawn. Across the way, Debbie McInnes stood under a greasy porch light and watched as the boys approached. It was past three in the morning when I woke up to the thrumming of the shower. And something else. Over the sound of water, I heard Ellis crying through the thin wall separating my room from the bathroom. It wasn't long before the shower and the crying stopped. I remember settling into bed and thinking the movie was really messing with him. I fell asleep, unaware of just how wrong I was. The next day, Ellis shook me awake. Get your shit. We're going to the fort. But... I went to speak, but Ellis put a finger on his lips. I followed him out the back door, past the shed and across the dew-covered field to the end of our property. A rotten fence post and coils of rusted barbed wire marked the boundary between our property and the forest beyond. Just over the fence was a narrow footpath, beaten into the ground by generations of men on their way to deer blinds, and scores of young boys looking to explore the woods. We walked along the path to the brook. I pointed down at the sodden bridge of logs and plywood we built. Ellis nodded at the crack at the center of the bridge. We crossed and picked up the path, following it down into a depression. The path dropped down almost five feet and ended in a rock formation. Trees on all sides loomed overhead, blocking out most of the sunlight. There, cast in shadow, was our fort and the giant boulder that formed the back wall of our secret spot. The fort was built from scrap wood left over from one of our father's construction jobs. It was nothing more than a box built against a giant rock. It was perfect. The front door was held closed by red bale twine. I waited beside Ellis as he uncoiled it and pushed open the flimsy door. As we entered, dim light filtered through the trees, shining along a bench and two milk crates we used as makeshift chairs. 
On one of the crates was an oil lantern, a flashlight, and the pellet gun, all borrowed from the house. We crossed the space and faced the boulder back wall of the fort. Ellis knelt in the dirt and brought the magazine out from his waistband, feeding it into a small crack at the base of the rock formation, tucking it up into a small shelf inside. He stood and dusted off his jeans. <coughs> uh, we'll keep it here. He won't find it? Who, fat boy? He can barely tie his own shoe. Besides, we can tell him we lost it. Maybe we'll get another one. Ellie, he won't believe... He doesn't fucking care, Gabe. Jesus, he should be grateful we even hang out with him. Why do you hang out with him? Ellis had turned and was towing up the dark soil, covering up as much of the crack as possible. Better than hanging out with you. I knew this question had bothered him, so I tried to change the subject. Maybe you're right. His mom gets them after all. Isn't that weird, Ellie? His mother... Ellis had stopped kicking dirt over the crack and was now smoothing out the soil to cover his work. His back was still to me. His hands were balled into fists. He spat before speaking. Yeah. She's weird. They both are. Ellis spun around. Instinctually, I stepped back. Ellis's reach was long, and his hand found the collar of my shirt. Don't say a word about this to anyone, you little shit. Get me? I nodded fiercely. He let go of my shirt. You're gonna ask him tomorrow for a new magazine. Me? Yeah, you. It's more believable. What do I say? Make something up. Now get out. I'll be in in a while. But what if... Ellis's knuckles dug into my shoulder. The sting of the punch felt like hot lightning. I reared back. Ellis was reaching for me again. I took off through the door and ran down the path without looking back. I stopped when I reached the bridge. The plywood was broken in two places, not one. I took off my shoes and waded into the cold water. A support log was also broken. Ellie and I, even Luke, used it all the time. For the next few hours, I searched for a replacement log and considered what could have broken it. By the time I came out of the woods, it was three o'clock. My father's truck was gone. He had left for his softball league. The gray clouds from earlier gave way to a piercingly blue sky. It was warm and the sun seemed painted on everything. The world felt mine. I was ready to carry out Alice's plan. As I approached Luke's house, I had to squint away the sun radiating off the aluminum siding. The house was prefabricated, the sort of thing brought in on a semi in two parts and assembled on site. The rectangular cube sat on packed dirt. The yard was hardpan, 
dotted with patches of crabgrass and dandelions. A gravel driveway led from the road to the front of the house. A twisted trail of stones broke off from the drive and ended at a two-step platform in the front door. I knocked. The door jerked open. A jaguar snarled at me. The speckled cat stretched across Luke's stomach. His jersey hung halfway down to his knees. Sup there, gamey boy? He smiled and stepped forward. My bike. I jerked my head toward the side of the house. The fuck you talking about, Gabe? I said nothing and leaped down to the gravel driveway, hoping Luke would follow. I turned the corner of the house and waited. A moment later, Luke came and stood beside me. He was struggling to catch his breath. You better not be fucking with me, peckerhead. We want a new magazine. He threw up his hands. Jesus fucking James Bond. Why didn't you just ask? I, I, I didn't want anyone... My ma's the one who buys them, numbnuts. Luke's eyes glazed over as he stared into the field. A thought had occurred to him. Your brother sent you? We... We can't find the other one. Can't find it. Luke was nodding again. He knew it was bullshit. I I think our dad found it. I blurted again, feeling the pressure of Luke's gaze. Luke went on nodding. Yeah. Tell you what. I'll get you another one. Luke turned back toward his house. I followed. When? I stood at the foot of the platform. Luke didn't have time to answer. The front door opened. Gaby boy, is that you? Debbie McInnes stood at the door. Her hair was pulled tight into a ponytail. Her large breasts sat on top of the stomach that hung over her waist. A tattoo of a cross was visible on the right side of her chest. Move your ass, Luke. She elbowed her son aside. Luke waited for his mother to pass, then climbed up the steps and opened the front door. Later. Keep your eyes peeled. He closed the door behind him. Something grazed the back of my neck, and I jumped back. Debbie McInnes drew her hand back to her side and stared down at me, her expression saying, Don't be so jumpy, honey. Ain't you so grown now? Yes, ma'am. Ma'am? Now you're making me feel old. Didn't you know I'm 25? (laughs) Debbie's breasts bounced as she laughed. How's that honey of a brother of yours? He's fine, ma'am. Amy, though. Your daddy did raise some handsome boys. I said nothing, trying not to fiddle with my hands. Debbie didn't seem to mind or notice, and continued. What you want with Luke? You boys ain't getting in uh, trouble? 
Debbie leaned forward as if to get down to my level. Her breasts hung like huge bags, barely contained by the pink shirt. I privately cursed my red face. No, ma'am, just asking about my bike. Your bike? She stood up straight again. Of course you are. And did you get what you wanted? I nodded. That's good, honey. Debbie placed a hand on her upper chest, then spoke with feigned concern. For my sake, stay out of trouble. I was turning on my heels when she came back to me, almost in a whisper. Unless you want trouble, then you know where to find me. Debbie McInnes winked at me before turning back toward the house. I began walking across the lawn when she called back, this time nearly hollering for me to hear. Oh, and tell that handsome brother to drop by. Me and Luke love having him at the house. <laughs> Debbie laughed again, waddled up to the front door, and disappeared inside. I walked back to the house. My father and Ellis were both gone. I went to the living room and played video games, looking out the window every half hour or so. I knew there'd be hell to pay if I screwed it up. It was around dusk when I put down the controller to get a snack. Ellis wasn't home, nor was my father. Either it was extra innings at his softball game or he was at Denise's. I went to the wall phone to call her when I heard a knock at the back door. I opened the door to see Luke standing in the naked white light of the back porch. So. Luke pushed past me and into the house. Ellis isn't here. I'm not sure where he is. Luke had moved past the small mudroom and skulked into the hallway toward the kitchen. I followed Luke as he moved deeper into the house. His shoulders were rounded as he peeked around each corner. No Freddy? I think he's with Denise. Know when he'll be back? Luke poked his head into the living room. No, but if Ellis comes back, I'll have him call you. Luke was nodding his head as I spoke. He stopped in the dark hallway just outside my bedroom door. I clicked on the hallway light, and he spun around, smiling. No worries, Bud Munch. I'm here to talk to you. Before I could ask... He dug into the pockets of his stained basketball shorts and pulled out a small figurine. I found this. He held it up for me to see. I took the figurine from him and turned it over in my hands. It was a miniature wolfman. It was similar to the Dracula figurine that sat on top of my dresser. The wolfman had a mouth filled with sharp teeth as well as a head of plastic hair and tufts of fur bursting from his black suit. The figurine looked glossy and new. 
I asked where he found it. Ma found it. He pushed open my bedroom door and entered. I followed. Thought you might like it. Thanking him, I set the figurine beside the other universal monsters. Luke watched as I did this, leaned onto the dresser and blocked the door. He reached for the Dracula and turned it over in his hands. These are pretty cool. I like the blood around the mouth. Luke fiddled with the miniature. He fixed the arms to point forward as if to embrace the would-be victim. The face of the monster pointed directly at me. Ellis tell you about tonight? My eyes were on the Dracula peering down at me from the top of the dresser. I shook my head. Gonna be pretty cool. Got a couple of beers from my ma's. Somebody special might come tonight, too. Like a little party. I thought it was a secret for it. Luke scoffed and shifted his weight off the dresser. The figures rattled. Luke shuffled toward me and sat at the edge of the bed. Nah, they've been out there a few times. Ellis won't like that. Luke rolled his eyes. Screw Ellis. He's been out there with me a few times when we've partied. He nodded his head slowly. Had a good time, too. Luke was looking directly at me now. His hands unfolded from his lap and lay flat on my bed. I shifted my weight and slid further back onto the bed. So, what do you say? Come out tonight. It's gonna be fun. His eyes were red and glassy. Please. Ellis doesn't like it when I hang out with his friends. He already knows. I told him if he didn't ask you, I would. What do you say? Luke didn't wait for my reply. Come on. It's time to join the guys. He smiled wider. Maybe. Luke was leaning forward, even closer than before, when the front door opened. Luke's smile fell, and his head snapped toward the door. He stood, and in two striding steps he was out of the room and in the hall. Luke and Ellis's muffled shouts traveled through the wall. Ellis's voice rose even higher, followed by something hitting the wall. If Luke responded, I didn't hear. The silence broke with the fading echo of footsteps and the bang of the front door. I knew Ellis by the sound of his stride. He shuffled out of the hall. For a moment I heard nothing. Then came the high-pitched timer inputs of the microwave, its steady hum and the final chime. Ellis came in without knocking, holding a melted burrito on a paper plate. He sat on the floor with his back propped against the bed frame. He shoveled several bites into his mouth. 
I could see only the top of his head, but heard beans and cheese squishing around in his mouth. He ate one half of the burrito. Wordlessly, Ellis handed up the paper plate over his head and let it rest on my mattress. I took the peace offering without comment and ate my half. Back in the fort, just don't talk so much shit, okay? You know it pisses me off. I chewed the burrito. This was about as good as it would ever get. I, I knew I fucked up. I'm sorry. Ellis twisted his neck and raised his eyebrow. And don't swear so goddamn much. The raised eyebrow and half sneer spread into a smile, followed by a chuckle. <laughs> Ellis turned again, facing away from me. By the angle of his head, I knew he was staring up at the poster of the movie Warlock. I knew what he was thinking, so I risked it. Remember when Dad took us to see it? <laughs> God, Mom was pissed. I miss Mom. Me too. More and more. I didn't want to, but it came. My throat became dry and I felt the tears coming. I knew my voice would crack next time I spoke. It isn't fair. What isn't? I heard the edge in his voice then. The same cracking. The same desire to maintain control. Ellis shook his head and stood. I feared my brother. There was no telling what he could do. But I didn't care. I miss Mom. But she's dead. And there's nothing we can do about it. I turned and buried my face in my pillow, trying to hide the tears and the hate I had for him. Come on. New magazine, remember? I pulled my face away from my pillow. My face was red and hot. I don't give a shit about some girly magazine or, or a stupid party at the fort. Our fort. <laughs> Ellis shoved my feet. I slid across the bed. I couldn't hold back any longer. I wailed into my pillow. Fine, be a fucking baby. But you'll thank me later. Ellis stood at the door, remembered something, and spun around one last time. And stay out of the fort. I got shit going on and I don't need some goddamn kid out there. My hands shook as I pulled a blanket over my head. Ellis didn't need to worry. There was no way I was going to that fort. I didn't have to wait long for sleep. I woke before the sun came up. A dream of Emily Rakowitz, a girl from my gym class, sweating in her volleyball shorts, was fresh in my mind. 
I dressed, strapped on my old boots, and took out a thick flannel I was certain had seen its last cold afternoon. The dream of Emily still lingered. Prickling warmth filled my body. There was something I needed to do. Creeping down the hall, I heard my father snoring. I passed the basement door. It was open. I knew something wasn't right, but I didn't put it together until much later. At the time, I could only think of Ellis's fury if I went down into his room. I eased the basement door closed and went out the back door and toward the woods. I walked in a haze of sleepiness. Overhead, the sky rumbled with the sound of thunder. Eventually, I reached the fort. The front door was open. I walked forward into the rectangle of blackness. My mind split between the hidden magazine and the dream of Emily Rakowitz. Two steps inside, and my foot struck something. I stumbled back to the mouth of the door. No sound, no motion came. It wasn't a deer. Judging by the sensation in my foot making contact, I knew it was something bigger. A small break in the gray sky shot a beam of murky light into the fort. Debbie McInnes lay on the ground, her cheek pressed into the dirt. Debbie? I stepped closer. The bleak sky cracked open. Dull light struck her face. Debbie's head was tilted toward me. Her eyes were cloudy. A trail of blood had trickled and hardened into a small line running from her mouth, frozen halfway down her cheek. Purple bruises spidered out from the coil of twine still wrapped around her neck. The thin rope was soaked in blood cutting deep into her flesh to expose the layer of silvery fat underneath. I knelt down and looked away from her glassy eyes. Dirt caked her hands. Thick clumps of it were caked on her knees. A circle of black soil was imprinted on the back of her purple top. I stood, and the light in the room changed. The sun was still behind the gray clouds, but somehow everything was brighter. My eyes fixed on the bloody twine that dug into her neck. Someone choked her from behind. Debbie was tall, I thought to myself. Taller than my father. Taller than everyone I knew. She was already kneeling when someone came from behind and garroted her with twine. I felt dizzy. I looked around the room, waiting for someone to come out to say something, tell me it was a joke. But there was no one. My eyes bulged and darted across the room, and that's when I saw it. I don't know how I missed it at first. 
resting on the top of the milk crate were the deep blue eyes and platinum blonde hair of the centerfold. A moan of thunder from behind brought a breeze of air through the unshuttered door. The pages flapped and the centerfold disappeared. The magazine closed. She had been kneeling at the foot of the bench when it happened. What happened? The magazine had been out, but Debbie didn't know where it was hidden. Nor did Luke. But Ellis and I did. Part of my brain must have made the connection, but I can't say for certain. It all went black after that. Later, my father told me he heard me screaming from inside the house. He heard my shrieks over the growing rumble of thunder and pouring rain. I don't remember any of it. When I came to, I was back in the house. I saw my father's face between the wet tendrils of my hair. His dark brown eyes welled on the verge of tears as he called to me, nearly shouting my name an inch from my face. What happened? What happened? My father kept asking. But I kept saying, Emily, Emily, Emily. It was Ellis who said that maybe I meant Debbie, not Emily. My father went then to check out the fort, ordering Ellis to call the police and stay with me. I sat on the couch. I was crying. In truth, I wasn't crying for Debbie. I couldn't help looking up at the photo of my mother. I was crying for her. Several times, Ellis called to me from the kitchen. It's gonna be okay. Ellis vigorously washed something in the sink. I could barely hear him over the scrubbing. It's gonna be okay. I only stared out the window at the growing storm. It's gonna be okay. At some point, the drone of the town weather alarm bellowed in the distance. The thunder and rain roared outside. I stayed seated on the couch and held my eyes shut. Spring released a torrent of more thunder and rain. Our dirt road washed out. An hour passed before the sheriff and two officers stood in our kitchen. They took statements from everyone. I felt my father and Ellis's stony glares as the police officer, a young female, squeezed question after question out of me. The magazine was never mentioned. The police wanted to talk to Ellis and my father privately. I never knew what was asked of them. They never told. It didn't matter. It was clear who killed Debbie McInnes. While questioning my family, the other officers had investigated the McInnes' house. No one was home. Two days later, Luke was found in Pontiac, Michigan. Once in handcuffs, Luke started talking. Luke told the police about him and his mother's special relationship. She bought him beers, girly magazines, 
let him stay out all night, and sometimes wanted him to do other things. Luke confessed to the murder within hours of capture. After confessing, Luke refused to talk about his mother's murder. Two weeks later, Luke McInnes hung himself in his cell. Afterward, a silence fell over our home. I avoided my brother and father. Six months later, Ellis ran away. Once or twice a year, we'd get a call, Ellis assuring us he was all right. But I knew better. And obviously, so did my father. Parents know a lot, even when they pretend not to. He must have seen the magazine the night we rented Faces of Death and knew we were stashing it somewhere. Our father knew Ellis as he knew himself. Just as he knew it would have been next to impossible for Luke to overpower Debbie alone. I have to end it here. The time of denial is over. A car is parking in the driveway. I know it is Ellis. I called him last night. We have to sort out our father's estate, but that's not why I called him back to this place. I am no longer a child unable to understand. If he was caught up in something or too afraid to stop Luke or Debbie, I would understand. But maybe it was something worse. See why I hesitate? He's my brother. Before I decide to do anything, I'm going to show him the magazine and watch his face closely. I'm going to search his dark eyes to see, to finally know what really happened that weekend in the spring of 1996. The sun creeps above the horizon. The darkness slowly fades, for now. But you will fear the darkness once again, as you remain sleepless. The No Sleep Podcast is presented by Creative Reason Media. The musical score was composed by Brandon Boone. Our production team is Phil Mykolski, Jeff Clement, and Jesse Cornett. Our creative content manager is Olivia White. Our editor-in-chief is Jessica McAvoy. Please visit the NoSleepPodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this show. 
On behalf of everyone at the No Sleep Podcast, we thank you for being a supportive Season Pass member and for being ever sleepless. This program is copyright 2022 by Creative Reason Media Inc. All rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media, Inc.